Psalm 145 is one of our family's favorite psalms. If there's ever a passage of scripture that exalts God to the highest level of praise, it's this one. This is a psalm in praise of the great king, our God, the Lord. And if you want to get into the right attitude of worship, open up this last psalm written by David. If you don't know what to say in the morning, open this one up. It's all about praise. We're used to thanking God, and we have a lot to be thankful for, but we're not exactly clear of how to praise God, and that's what this psalm is going to be about today. The Jews had such reverence for Psalm 145 that it was recited twice in the morning and once in the evening. And the basic book of Jewish law, the Talmud, states that everyone who repeats this psalm three times a day may be sure that he is a child of the world to come. Now, we know as Christians, you need to have faith in Jesus Christ. So don't think that's going to get you in the easy way, okay? Also, this psalm appears in the Jewish prayer book more than any other of the 149 psalms. And this is the only psalm that's identified as a psalm of praise. Perhaps it implies that we need to give this one some special attention. So that's what we're going to do this morning. If you'll read with me from Psalm 145, please. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving toward all he has made. The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all he has made. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Lord God, I want to lift up this morning to you and pray that my words would be your words and your words mine, that we may glorify you today in this congregation. Thank you for who you are. We praise you and we want to glorify your name in everything we do and say. And so we commit this time again to you in Jesus' name. Amen. The other morning, I heard uh, singing coming out of my daughter's room. And I opened the door and I asked Dee, Dee what she was doing. And she told me that she was singing her daily psalm. And I go, really? I go, do you do this often? She goes, she does this every day. And I didn't even know about that. 
And if there's ever a song to sing in praise of the Lord, it's this one. This isn't a psalm of thanksgiving, and it's not a psalm of prayer. It's praise, pure and simple. What is praise? Well, C.S. Lewis says, we praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. When I tell my wife she's the most beautiful woman in the world, I'm not doing that just simply to compliment her, though it is a compliment. When I tell her that, it gives me great delight to tell my wife she is the most beautiful woman in the world. That's where I get my joy, and that's where she gets hers, because it's a sincere compliment. I'm praising her for who she is. Praising God is something that we do now that we'll also do in eternity. Our prayers will cease, because in heaven they'll be answered, right? Everything. All of our prayers will be answered in heaven. Faith will end when we see God face to face. And our hope will finally be realized when we're there. But our praises, our praises will continue forever and ever. Now, David praised God in this psalm for his greatness, his graciousness, and his goodness. Let's look at how great God is in the first seven verses. We'll read one through three first. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. If there's ever a time that we need to look to the Lord and remember who he is, it's now, isn't it? With this culture on the fast track to taking God out of the public square from our motto, In God We Trust, the atheists are constantly attacking that national motto. To the cross on the Los Angeles seal, which has been removed, by the way. To the removal of prayer from city council meetings. You can't mention the name of Jesus in those prayers. We need to reflect and remember how great God is. That all these machinations done by human beings here in the government, whatever they can try to do to take God out, he cannot be taken out. We need to remember he's great. Psalm 97 reminds us of that. For you, O Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted above all gods, far above all gods. Psalm 86, for you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. And Psalm 95, for the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands form the dry land. I want to ask you this question. Do you believe this? Maybe you didn't understand the question. Do you believe this? Okay. We're talking about our Lord and our God, and this is not something we want to sit idly by on our hands, gazing at our Bibles. No, this is an opportunity to engage who God is and understand how great our Lord is. His hands formed the dry land. He created us out of the dust. Some people believe that's a myth. These are just the creation myths. Do you believe who God says he is far above all gods? Far above all gods. Or, or, and some of you may have your doubts, saying to yourselves that this is circular reasoning. Well, that's God saying all that about himself. Where's the proof? That's where the unbelieving world is today. And if your kids are going to a secular university, 
They are going to be challenged in what they believe about God, and they may just leave an atheist. One of the stewards on our staff here, Joey, told me that he and Ash and a few others uh, are enrolled last year in a class at Harbor College. And the very first day, the professor asked the class, how many here are born-again Christians? And five or six hands went up. And then he asked, how many of you are lousy Christians? And then, of course, 10 or 15 hands were raised up. And he says, I want to talk to you born-again Christians. Do you find it to be irresponsible to teach your kids about something of faith when there's no proof? So he's going right for the juggler the very first day of class. Imagine being in class after class after class with these secularites nibbling away at your children's faith. When the students at El Camino see me and I go there every Thursday to share my faith on campus, they'll, they know who I am and they'll say to me something like this, Hail Satan! Or, where's the proof? Or, there is no God. They're trying to get a rise out of me, but they don't. So let me ask you, what happened? How did all these atheists suddenly appear? Have you noticed there's a certain animosity towards Christians these days? We have a lost generation that is now defining our culture. Apparently, Christians have not heeded this part of Psalm 145. Verse 4, one generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. Vody Bauckham in his book, Family Driven Faith, we have a gross growth group on that. Not a gross group, a growth group <laughs> on this. And there's still room. You may want to sign up for it. He writes, anyone who has been paying attention lately is aware of the startling statistics concerning Christian children leaving the faith. Depending on the study, he writes, we are losing a vast majority of teens raised in evangelical homes by the time they finish their freshman year in college. It doesn't take a statistical genius to figure out that something is wrong with the way we are training our children. Now, researchers state that 70 to 88 percent of Christian teens leave the church by their second year in college. That's nine out of ten believers leave the faith by the second year. 85% of born-again teens do not believe in the existence of absolute truth. What does that mean? They don't believe this word. They don't believe the word of God. This is absolute truth. 60% agree with the statement, quote, nothing can be known for sure except the things you experience in your own life. And more than half of those surveyed believe that Jesus sinned during his earthly life. Well, it doesn't bode well, does it, for the next generation? The focus in most homes, sadly, are not on the things of God. As Kevin Bryan, our Dean of Hope Academy, says, too many parents are focused on Harvard, not heaven. And my quote is this. I'll add, the goal is grade point averages, not grade praise attributed. Karen and I have come up with a little system for our children. We've incentivized them using unrighteous mammon. My daughter, Dee Dee, earned $100 on January 1st for reading the entire Bible in one year. We encouraged her, though she may not have always wanted to do that. She was encouraged by the $100. Well, wait, is that right? Yes, of course it's right. I'll do whatever I can to get my, my daughter's noses into the Word of God. 
My other daughter, Laurel, who is nine years old, will earn her $100 on her birthday, November 1st. She has to read the New Testament, Psalms, and Proverbs. But when she turns 10, she's got to read the Old Testament too. And I told my daughters, you know, when you do this, you're going to read more than probably 90% of those who call themselves Christians, who haven't read the entire Bible. We're determined to talk about the Lord, exalting Him, praising Him before our daughters. We want our girls to honor the Master, not focus on getting a Master's. And we want them to know what He has done and continues to do in our lives. My wife has struggles at times homeschooling our children. Who can relate? Okay. Wow, the rest of you know? Oh, man, it's a battle. And sometimes they don't always get the concepts that are taught to them. And it takes a lot of work. And I said, honey, honey, our focus isn't so much on the good grades and that they master the classes. Our focus for our girls is that they get an A in godliness. We want them to get an A in godliness. They aren't on the track to get a master's. Not that there's anything wrong with that or going right to college and working on a career. No, we have a radical notion to raise them up to be good wives so that they can support their husbands. Because when their husbands have a supportive wife who loves them, submits to them, the less chances are they're going to leave them. And since we have just saw these horrible statistics of people leaving the faith, the odds, apart from God's sovereignty, are slim. They're going to meet a godly man. But I say that apart from God's sovereign, but we already know God has that perfect man for them. Or, I'm sorry, that imperfect man who trusts in the Lord. So our focus isn't Harvard. No, it's not at all. If they choose to do that, great. But our focus is that they become godly and that they are a witness for our family, for the Lord, in this next generation. I want them to be the oddballs. I want them to be contramundum against the world. The buck starts here, families. Are you commending the works of God to the next generation in your home? Do you talk about the Lord? Now, they see us argue and disagree and sometimes fight. They see dad's great humility and apologizing to his wife regularly. 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 Are you aware of what he's doing in your lives and are you sharing what he's doing with them? Psalm 145, 5 through 7, They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works and I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. Do you speak of the glorious wonder of his majesty? What does that even mean? Well, R.C. Sproul explains that in ancient days, the status of monarchs was measured by the clothing they wore. International protocol would respond to the various levels of magnificence of their clothes. If the king wore ermine, that was incredible. If he wore sable, that was even better. Mink, eh, that was second or third class. And those that came in canvas robes, well, they had to sit in the back of the summit meetings of the kings. But listen to how Psalm 104 describes the majesty of the Lord in comparison to earthly kings in this way. Praise the Lord, O my soul. 
O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. That's majesty. I don't care how beautiful that cloth and how expensive it is. Who else can wrap himself in light as with a garment? In Isaiah 6.1, the prophet wrote this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, we don't understand in this culture what that means, how important the robe, uh, the train of the robe was. But to have large robes showed that a ruler was awesome and impressive and of great importance. I watched part of the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II on YouTube. You can see anything on YouTube. And I saw the length of a robe. And two pages had to carry the train because it trailed several feet behind her. But when Isaiah got a vision of the heavenly king. Sproul says he saw a king whose splendorous garments billowed out over the sides of the throne and unfurled back along the sides of the temple, around the back entranceway, spilling out and completely filling the entire building. That indicates magnificence, majesty, and great import. That's our king. That's our God. And in speaking of the prophet, John writes in his gospel, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. This is the majesty of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, that Isaiah saw hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years beforehand. That's our Jesus whose ultimate glory was demonstrated by his death on a cross and resurrection from the dead. That's our King of Kings. How can we not praise and exalt him How can we not tell others of the glory of his majesty? Now, the next part of Psalm 145 speaks about praising God for his graciousness. His graciousness. Verses 8 through 16. We'll read 8 through 10 right now. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. Nearly every morning I awake with these words on my lips. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and grace. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and grace. No matter how much I sin the day before, and because I'm married, I sin more than single people, or I should say differently. No matter how grievous my sin, I praise God for who he is. Gracious, compassionate, Slow to anger, rich in love, good to all. If you're a Christian, God is not standing over your head with a hammer waiting to smack you down like that little uh, whack-a-mole game. When you get out of line, he's not going to smack you down. Though, if you're a child of the king, child of the heavenly father, we will be disciplined. That's how we know he loves us. If you're not a Christian... You do have that fear or should have that fear that you'll be whacked down because tomorrow is promised to no one. Just thinking about what he saved me from makes me want to praise him. Praise you, Lord, for your marvelous plan. Quite frequently, 
I will hear Pastor Bruce recite this from Colossians 1 as we pray together. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God rescued us when we didn't even know we needed rescuing because he's compassionate and gracious. When I was an unsaved person, I did not think about hell. I only thought about heaven because me and the big guy were like this. Anyone who calls God the big guy, you know, right then and there, they don't know the Lord. I had no idea of what was in store for me should I die before I got saved. I didn't care because I was good enough. I was a good person. But God, in his infinite wisdom, rescued me. I have no idea. I've thought about that long and hard, and I can't think of one reason why he would save me. Can you think of one reason why he saved you? So, that can only lead us to this. Praise you, Lord, for your plan. I'm saved. Thank you, God. I'm saved. Unfortunately, many of us just think, praise God, I'm saved. To hell with them. (laughs) Do you know anybody who needs rescuing like we were rescued? We hold the life preservers in our mouths. That's all I'll say about that. Psalm 145, 11 through 13. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. Have you been a recipient of God's grace? Are you part of this heavenly kingdom right now? I, I, I can't wait. But you know what? I don't have this day to live over anymore. The end of this day, it's tomorrow, and this is gone. I have maybe 20 or 30 years left in my life, and then I never have this life again. I will never have another opportunity to glorify God in this body again. And so I want to be used by the Lord. I say, Lord, I want to stay healthy. I'm glad I'm healthy. Thank you so much, because I want to praise you. I want to, I want to witness for you. I want to serve you. Oh, please, keep me healthy. I want to go 80. Billy Graham, he's tottering around. Okay, I'll totter around. I know I can witness for him in a hospital bed. I'd prefer to be healthy because I want to glorify him. How about you? His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. I'm a recipient of God's grace. If you are, tell others. But God's grace doesn't stop there, does it? Psalm 145, 13 through 16. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving toward all he has made. The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. How many of you have troubles? Raise your hand. Hmm. How many of you have troubles? Okay. If you don't, wait. (laughs) Don't raise your hands on this one. How many of you have difficult marriages? Don't raise your hands. How about financial difficulties? How about issues you just can't resolve? How about this one? Anybody facing anything impossible right now? Anybody facing anything impossible right now? Raise that hand high just to make sure God sees you. Now, in the movie Casablanca, everyone in Rick's bar had troubles because they were stuck in a country that the Nazis were soon to overrun. That's trouble, being stuck in a country. By the way, that's our, my wife and my favorite little Romo comment, little Romo uh, 
the movie. Love watching that. That's pretty bad being stuck in a country that the Nazis, I mean, put it in today's parlance and we'll say a country that the Taliban is ready to overrun. Aye, aye, aye. But old Sam, the piano player, had a song that cheered everyone who was in trouble. He got down behind his ivories and he sang, say, who's got trouble? And everyone would say, we got trouble. And he'd say, how much trouble? And they'd all repeat back, too much trouble. And then he'd say, well, now, don't you frown, just knuckle down and knock on wood. And then everybody would knock on wood. The problem is, when the song ended, they still were in trouble. (laughs) Pretty ridiculous. But for three minutes, they could get away from those troubles. Now, we think that's silly, but but what do we do? What do we do? We take matters into our own hands by drinking. Yeah, you can forget about your troubles for a night, but in the morning, you have a bigger headache than you ever expected. And then that just leads to more of the same. Or we can buy things, and a month later, you're in more trouble. You can take meds. How about this one? Scream and holler. Ah, that works. Of course, God didn't know what he was doing when he gave you your family. I'll just take it out on them. All my misery. I'm going to yell at my husband. I want to give him a piece of my mind. I want to be... Silent treatment to my wife, and then I'll scream out. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. Or you can eat lots of ice cream like I do. I was talking about sin. Problem is with all of these things, of course, is that the trouble is still there. Are your eyes fixed on him, the author and perfecter? of your faith, the one who created the trouble and can also get us out at any given time. The point is, we focus on that trouble, it gets bigger and bigger. We focus on him, it gets smaller and smaller. I think about all the disciples in the boat and all of a sudden that furious squall got whipped up and they were crying out, Lord, save us. And where was Jesus? Asleep, asleep in the boat. In fact, I think it was Marcus said on a cushion, he had a little cushion. He was trusting in his heavenly father. He wasn't worried. How about this? Are you hurting? Are you beaten down? Can't take another day. God cares for the downcast. Jesus, when referring to hurting people, said this in reference to himself in Matthew 12. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. He cares. He knows right where you're at. If you're not aware of that, read Psalm 145 and meditate on it. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. I remember when I was newly saved and working at my new job 20 years ago, I was overcome with paranoia from the antagonism that I received from my coworkers. And I would just be fearful driving to work. I had a half an hour drive and I would, I would get on the sales floor and I would just be so nervous wondering what was going to happen today. But I remember hearing something that I heard from this pulpit, praise God and thank God, praise God and thank God. So that's what I did. I went to work and I started praising the Lord. I started thanking God. Next thing I know, hours had passed and I had not thought of my troubles at all. And God got me through another day to this day when there's trouble When there's anxiety and there's difficulties, I still praise God and thank God. 
I still praise God and thank God because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So praise God for his greatness. Praise God for his graciousness. Now praise God for his goodness. The remaining verses, 17 through 20. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all he has made. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Now's about the time you can shout back to me enthusiastically when I say something like this. God is good. All the time. God is good. All the time. All right. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? God is absolutely responsible for everything that happens in our lives. The good, the bad, and the ugly. So we can trust him even when things are most difficult. Why? Because he did it. He did it. No, Satan did it. No. As one theologian put it, Satan is God's Satan. I like that. Satan is God's Satan. That is, he uses Satan for his purposes. Don't blame Satan. Praise God. Because he's doing it for you, so you're going to grow in him. So you don't just like sit on your butt, get up late, read the Bible at the end of the day, and fall asleep during the proverb you read. No! He keeps those troubles there, so we're clinging on to him. We're clinging on to him with all we have. I don't know where I would be without the Lord. I do know. I have some ideas. I'm glad he's here. Here's here right now. How you respond when you're at the end of your rope, when you're fit to be tied, when the bottom falls out and the other shoe drops will say a lot about your relationship with the Lord. That says a lot about your relationship with the Lord. Are you clinging on to him? Are you drawing near to him because he'll draw near to you? He's faithful. He's faithful. Can you praise him anyway when things are bad? Because he's good. Can you praise him anyway when things are bad because he's good? Habakkuk did, chapter 3 of his book, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. That's a pretty bad situation. When everything's fallen down around us, but we have God. Job says, though he slay me, yet I will praise him. The one promise I have never found in a promise book is this. In this world, you will have trouble. Oh, I'm going to hold on to that promise. Job again says, as surely as sparks fly upwards, man is born to trouble. Don't worry about tomorrow because each day has what? Yow! Encourage your Christian neighbor that way. There's trouble coming. Go on. Go on. Tell you, encourage your neighbor. There's trouble coming. But God is in control of the trouble. Come on, Ed. Tell your wife that. I know your trouble. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I read about a 
Christian conference where helium balloons were given to the people and they were to release them during the service when they felt like expressing all the joy in their heart. And so all during the service, balloons were let go and they'd fly up into the ceiling. But when that service was over, a third of the people were still holding on to their balloons. They had no joy to express. Please, everyone here, don't hold on to your praises. Let them ring out. Let them sing out to our glorious, majestic God. Sing them out with all your heart. Praise God for his greatness. Praise God for his graciousness. Praise God for his goodness. And Psalm 145 concludes with this. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. The only fitting response to that is amen. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your grace, your mercy. Thank you for your forgiveness on us sinners who don't deserve anything but your wrath. But out of your grace, you gave us what we don't deserve. And I am so thankful for that. And I'm thankful, Lord, as we prepare our hearts for the communion tables and we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper and remember what you've done for us on that cross 2,000 years ago. Thank you, Lord. I I would be remiss in my pastoral responsibilities if I didn't give somebody a fighting chance for heaven right now. There may be a few of you here who don't know the Lord or you've been deceived into thinking you know him, but you don't have that relationship and you still are dead in your sin and trespasses. Let me explain what that means. A lot of people think because they've been going to church all their lives that they're in because they're religious or they read their Bible, say the right things, smile, they're in. You may be thinking that. You may be thinking you're good enough. No one's good enough. Maybe you walked down an altar years ago out of some crusade or another church, but there's been no fruit in your life. Really, you don't care about God or anything about what he has to say to you. This is who I'm speaking to right now. God has a standard by which he'll judge everyone by, and that's his standard of the Ten Commandments. That's God's moral law. If you've broken one of those commandments, that's called sin. And if you've sinned one time, the penalty is eternity in hell. So judge yourself by this standard as I go through a few of those quickly. Commandment 9 says you shall not lie. If you've ever told one lie, that makes you a liar. Commandment 8 says do not steal. If you've ever stolen anything, regardless of value, a penny, a pencil, a paper clip, a cookie, doesn't matter how long ago, that makes you a thief. Seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. Jesus calls looking with lust adultery. The Bible calls hatred murder. Ever hated anybody or gotten angry? Third commandment, do not misuse the name of the Lord. That's called blasphemy. Even saying, oh my G-O-D is taking God's name in vain. We're Americans. We always take God's name in vain, unfortunately. So if you've done any or all of those commandments... God will see you as a lying thief, a blasphemer, an adulterer at heart, and a murderer. On judgment day, you will be found guilty and end up in hell. That's bad news. Because the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us have sinned. But there's good news too, and the good news is so much greater. 2,000 years ago, God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. He was fully God and fully man. He suffered and died on that cross for you, for all your sins, was buried for three days and rose again to give you the hope of eternal life. If you repent, 
Turn away from your sin and put your trust in Jesus Christ alone. Be honest. You broke God's law. You have to pay the fine for eternity in hell. Or you can put your trust in the one who paid the fine for you, the man God, Christ Jesus. So I urge you today, fall upon the mercy of God. I plead with you, do not neglect so great a salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. That's where John 3.16 comes in. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. At the end of this service, if you would like to make a commitment to Jesus Christ, see me, see one of the elders in the prayer room. A family did that on Friday night and two of their children got saved. The husband is holding out. I hope you don't hold out. I hope you don't hold out. Now, for those of you who are believers... It's time to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And the protocol is simply this. Ready yourselves. Examine yourselves. Confess your sins to the Lord right now. Do business with him. Do not take this communion in an unworthy manner. Please examine your heart. Confess your sin. Then come forward. Take the cracker. Remember what Jesus Christ did how he took the punishment for our sins, how he was bruised for our iniquities. Take the juice and remember that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Remember that. That is precious. This is a memorial to the Lord. We're going to spend a few minutes, come up whenever you want to, and then we'll close with a song of worship.